103 years ago this month, Chicago was shaken to its core by racial violence. Black people were chased in the streets and alleys by angry white mobs. Many black families simply locked their doors and hid until the danger passed. In some cases, blacks retaliated and the violence spiraled. Racial incidents like this were happening across America in what became known as the Red Summer of 1919. In just one week, 38 Chicagoans were killed, more than 500 were injured, and more than 1,000 were left homeless. Obviously, anyone who lived through the Chicago race riots was forever changed. But how did the riots change Chicago? That's the question we got from Stephen Boone. He lives in the Southside neighborhood of Woodlawn. Stephen was particularly interested in whether the riots contributed to a defining characteristic of Chicago, our legacy of segregation. As much as I love my city, it's still really segregated. I know people personally who lived on the south side of Chicago their entire lives and have never been north of Madison, downtown. You know, it's, it's, it's just how it is here. I'm Jason Mark, and when we come back, former Curious City editor Jessica Popovac and University of Chicago professor Adam Green, they're going to answer Stephen's question by taking a deep look at the response to the riots by the most powerful institutions of the time, the police, the courts, the political organizations, the banks, and the realtors. That's next. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Chicago was definitely less segregated before 1919 than it was after. Chicago's black population was growing exponentially, but in many parts of Chicago, black and white people were figuring out how to live together in this new multiracial city. There were a number of both spheres of life, um, for instance, uh, a number of workplaces in the city schools across the city where there were few, if any, incidences of overt conflict. There were tensions and there were misunderstandings, but few of these actually uh, moved up to the level of racial conflict. Even the so-called Black Belt, now known as Bronzeville, was pretty integrated. At the time of the riot in 1919, it was more than 40 percent white. But people there were getting along and adapting. 
Green says that, according to historic documents and reports, this was true in other Southside neighborhoods, too. Places like Morgan Park, Englewood, and Woodlawn. Woodlawn was a community that was virtually all white at the beginning of the 20th century. Some number of African Americans began to move in uh, during the period from about uh, 1900, 1905. They were moving into homes in that community. There were no incidences of racial tension, whether it was in relation to housing, whether it was competition in terms of work. To be clear, African-Americans did experience discrimination in several places, and people in certain neighborhoods were downright hostile to black newcomers. But that was not true across Chicago. After the riots in July 1919, many blacks and whites across the city were frightened and appalled by the violence. And they were also determined to make sure that it never happened again. A group of city leaders, all men, but white and black men, came together just after the riot. They examined what happened, and they charted a path towards a more integrated and peaceful city. They were coming together as a group and saying, well, what can we do now to learn from this terrible set of events? How can we put ourselves in a position as a city to prevent such a conflict from ever taking place? They looked at hard data on Chicago's successes and failures. They disproved racial myths, and they issued a report. Green says their observations were striking. That people need to think carefully about the actual facts of racial contact in the city. That because African Americans move into white neighborhoods, it doesn't mean that property values depreciate That because African-Americans are in schools with white youth, it doesn't mean that there are constant fights and constant assaults on the part of people. That African-American men are not predisposed to sexual violence against white women. The commission also included clear recommendations. They called for integrated playgrounds and parks, for equal access to restaurants, theaters and stores, and for the city to monitor and respond to racial conflicts. The report also recommended that there be as much as possible a kind of de-escalation of the tendency on the part of white communities to believe their worst elements in relation to thinking about what was the likely trajectory of racial contact and even in some cases racial rivalry or racial contest. But the commission said none of these recommendations could happen without justice, meaning the city had to hold perpetrators of racial violence to account. And that's one of the first ways that the police, the courts, and city leadership failed. Crimes committed during the riot went uninvestigated and unpunished. And the justice system came down hardest on black residents, even those who acted in self-defense. The commission pointed out that white gangs were key instigators of the riot and recommended that the violent gangs be disbanded. But that also didn't happen. Instead, they continued to intimidate black residents in several predominantly white neighborhoods. That was the case in Hyde Park. Hyde Park, as opposed to Woodlawn, realized a kind of pitch of hysteria and panic. There was a sense that if African-Americans were not forced to leave, and if necessary, according to the more extreme people within the community, by violence, um, that the community itself would sort of, you know, fall apart. Black homeowners continued to face violence in other neighborhoods, too. And this violent atmosphere, combined with the lack of justice for rioters, added to a feeling of fear and lawlessness on both sides. 
Still, some people, black and white, lobbied to heed advice from the commission. They lost. It's important to be very, very clear here. Um, Too much of the leadership of the city, whether it was private sector, philanthropic, religious, political, whether it was grassroots, um, too much of the city chose to ignore the recommendations. And I think they chose to ignore the recommendations because in some ways to embrace the recommendations would have been too disruptive to the worldview that they had already sort of adopted themselves to. After 1919, which could have been the pretext for saying, we've got to figure out a way how to throw our lot in together and and build a city that's Mm -hmm. multiracial. Instead, people said, we already know our worldview in relation to those people. So let's find a way to either drive them out of the city if we can, but if we can't drive them out of the city, let's contain them. Let's put them in as small a space as possible, give them as small a share of resources as possible, and make them as little um, a potential sort of source of challenge to our authority and our supremacy. And so Chicago could have gone either way, towards greater integration or greater segregation. But too many people, especially whites in power, found it more convenient to ignore the facts and succumb to their fears. People were prepared to say, we're not going to consult the facts. We're going to double down on this tendency that what we have to do is contain this population rather than think about how to coexist with it. For white realtors and lenders, this translated into more formalized segregation. Just ahead, what that formalized segregation meant for black Chicagoans and, in fact, all Chicagoans in the 1920s all the way up to today, more than 100 years later. That's next. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark. Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. By 1925, just six years after the riots, the politically powerful Chicago Real Estate Board found a quasi-legal solution, restrictive covenants. The covenants were drawn into homeowners' contracts, forbidding them to rent or sell to African Americans. Often entire blocks or neighborhood associations would sign on to them. They had the effect of crowding blacks into just a few neighborhoods. By the mid-1930s, 75% of the city of Chicago was covered by restrictive covenants Mm -hmm. and not accessible to African American purchase of homes. The covenants were outlawed in 1948, but they had already segregated blacks and whites during the peak of the Great Migration. So really, going back to Stephen's question about the 1919 riots' effects on segregation, Green says the riots did have an effect, 
But really, the effect was from the choices that individuals and communities made after the riot. They could have resisted an environment of fear, but instead, they reached for restrictive covenants and other inequitable lending and selling practices, and they all had ripple effects. And changes in schools, changes in policing, and ultimately changes that created two completely divergent forms of life to the point now where a predominantly black community, Englewood, has a, a, a life expectancy of barely 60 years. And a community that's predominantly white and rich, Streeterville, has a life expectancy above 90 years. Those disparities are ones that tell us how different the lives are of African-Americans and whites. That's a legacy of the race riot. But it's not a legacy of the race riot as a moment of conflict. It's a legacy of the race riot in terms of people deciding that the way to avoid that conflict from ever happening was to enforce the separation of people who are white and black from each other. That was Adam Green, professor of history at the University of Chicago. This story was originally produced and edited in 2019 by Sean Ali, Jesse Dukes, and Jessica Popovac. Curious City is supported by the Conan Family Foundation. The team includes Joe Dassault, Maggie Sivet, and Adriana Cardona-Magigat. Our fearless and fabulous editor for part of the summer is Kate Cahan. And don't forget, you're the one that makes Curious City happen, so to submit your questions about Chicago and Chicago-area culture, history, and more, go to wbez.org slash Curious City. I'm Jason Mark. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you back here next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.